0: Sarcasm is a thing that few people enjoy being around, or sarcastic people, I should say, because when you're around a sarcastic person, not long will it take for their words flailing about to soon inflict wounds upon you. Nearly everyone they touch, it seems, is cut in some way by their stabbing and biting words, inconsiderate words. Egotistical, self-centered, sometimes arrogant words, destructive, not constructive words. All of that makes them distant and uh, often isolated eventually because of the way they work. It's not to say sarcasm itself, though, is necessarily sinful. What is sinful is the heart of a person who would employ it in such ways what is sinful is the heart and the intent of a person who's so filled with themselves who would employ their language, whether it's sarcasm or whether it's bitterness or manipulation or whatever it might means, in such a way as to build themselves up, to make themselves the center of attention, to attract for themselves glory and honor or whatever it might be that they're seeking. That is what is sinful in the use of so much of sarcasm that we hear. That's helpful to understand as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. Perhaps one of the most sarcastic passages in all of scripture, certainly in the New Testament. It may compare maybe with a few passages that are given in the prophet Isaiah, but in the New Testament it is certainly one of the most or maybe the most sarcastic passage in all of all of the New Testament scriptures. But the sarcasm itself is not sinful. Because it's being employed here by the Apostle Paul, not for selfish and egotistical goals, but for the goals of calling believers, these believers, back to a place of faithfulness in their walk with the Lord. Paul employs sarcasm and irony really to jolt these Corinthians into seeing just how very, very far they had strayed from walking in faithfulness to the Lord. What Paul has to say to them has such a massive irony and paradox, it couldn't help but strike them with a sense of shame as they heard it, realizing just how much they had allowed themselves to become influenced by the ways of the world, by the thinking of the world, by the lifestyle of the world. In fact, down in verse 14 Of 1 Corinthians 4, in order to sort of soften the blow, Paul has to say to them, Look, I I do not write these things in order to make you ashamed. Meaning that's not my goal in and of itself. I'm not purely trying to belittle you. I'm not purely trying to fill you with a sense of grief and shame. But shame is, in fact, a tool that he's using for the ultimate goal of calling them back to faithfulness. That's what this sarcasm is all about. He has to write that in verse 14 because you cannot help but to wince from the obvious shame of the situation as you hear what Paul has to say. Let me begin just by reading this for us so we can sort of let it soak in for a moment what exactly Paul's saying. Beginning in verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become... And are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's essentially calling them here to take a good, hard look at their own lives, and really gives us a chance to take a good, hard look at our own lives as well, to sort of size ourselves up spiritually, if you will, to sort of figure out where we stand, how we measure up, how well or poorly we're doing, any of those things, this is a call for us to size ourselves up spiritually. According to everything Paul has written here, he's really going really to call them and call us to consider our standing spiritually in light of three realities. The first one in verse 6 are the scriptural principles he's already laid out. That's what he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit that you might learn by us not to go beyond what is written. All these things he says to himself and Apollos, some versions say he has applied them figuratively because the word is metaschemata, literally is uh, just, just transforming something, that's what it means, but he sort of He sort of transformed some images. He sort of applied or carried over some images. And it's obvious what he's talking about in the context. If you go back to verse 6 of chapter 3, he referred to himself and Apollos there, calling or comparing himself to farmers who planted and watered as they did their ministry. And then you come to verse 10 of that same chapter, and then he compares them to builders who are building with various materials And then you come down to verse 1 of chapter 4, and he calls himself a slave of Christ. And verse 2, excuse me, at the end of verse 1, a steward, which is just sort of a more advanced slave. All of these analogies that he's given are really for the purpose of helping them understand everything that Scripture has said. All the Scripture that he's given to them thus far All of these analogies are to help them apply the Scriptures to this situation. Because Paul has absolutely peppered them with Scripture up to this point. He has filled the first three chapters with with reference after reference and really exposition after exposition of Old Testament Scripture. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19... Back there, he quotes for us, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, he says, I will it, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29, calling on the, or, or I should say, uh, revealing the fact that God has set himself against the wisdom of the world. He set himself against those who would exalt themselves in their own wisdom and even down at the end of that chapter, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Once again, really setting up the glory of the Lord as opposed to the glory of man. Chapter 2, verse 9, he quoted again from the Old Testament, making clear that, that we are dependent on God alone for the revelation of truth in his scripture. It isn't something that arises from us. In verse 16 of that same chapter, once again, quoting from the Old Testament about how we have the mind of Christ because no one has understood the mind of the Lord or no one has instructed Him. That's the quotation. Over in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, God catches the wise in their craftiness. And in the next verse, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, over and over and over again. Paul has been quoting to them Scripture, after Scripture, after Scripture, out of the Old Testament, to make known, to make clear that this has always been God's message. He has always been opposed to the wisdom of men. He has always been jealous for His own glory. He's always worked through the weakness of man. He's always expected man to be dependent on Him for truth. So Paul says, I've applied all these things so that you would learn not to view Apollos, not to view me, not to view any of your leaders in the wrong way. Not to go beyond the boundaries of what Scripture clearly lays out. In other words, not to see any man As any source of truth. Not to look to any person, any orator, any leader, any pastor, any preacher, anyone as a source of truth. And most certainly not to look at the world as a source of truth. And Romans 1 tells us that the world is an act of rebellion against God. Paul has even told us here in chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, the natural man can't even understand the things of God. His mind is in rebellion against God, against His truth, against His glory, and therefore all the systems of the world that operate according to the principles of the unbelieving mind, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now working in the sons of disobedience, all of them are useless, they're futile, and they're rejected by God. And then even we as believers... Our minds on their own are no better. They still are completely dependent on divine revelation to understand anything about God, about His will, whether it be for your life, for your home, for your church, or for the world. No thought that originates with man has any value In making known God's will in any of those things. That's the point. If you want to stay within the boundaries of Scripture, you're going to stay within that. This is the message that Paul has spelled out. And so Paul says, look, that's the way you need to understand myself. And that's the way you need to understand Apollos. Don't go beyond Scripture in the way you think of us. That doesn't contradict everything the Scripture says about honoring your spiritual leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5 says you are to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, you are to obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch for your souls as those who will give an account. You're supposed to allow them to do that, it says, with joy and not with grief because it's not beneficial to you. For them to always be walking around burdened over petty things. 1 Timothy 5, they're to be considered worthy of double honor. Paul's not contradicting any of those things. He's not necessarily diminishing leaders. But he's urging believers to develop a mindset that, that would understand that this kind of honor and this kind of value that you're going to show towards your leaders is in proportion to the accuracy, the faithfulness, and the clarity with which they present the truth of God. End of story. That is where the honor comes from, and that is why it's due. They're not honored simply because of their title, they're not honored simply because of their position or their popularity or any of those things. If you're going to understand, he says, and if you're going to think with a biblical mindset, you're going to have to understand the scriptural principles and the way that you are to view your leaders, view them within the boundaries of scripture, he says. But really, he's applied them to Apollos and himself, he says, not ultimately just for that purpose, but for what? For your benefits also. For your benefit also. So that you wouldn't be puffed up one against another. Because, see, this is what happens. It doesn't always stay just with the leader. People may attach themselves to a leader. They may use a leader They may use some figurehead. They may use some label. But really what they're after is the exaltation of themselves. They begin to think that they themselves have some corner on the truth. They begin to think that they themselves are some source of wisdom. They begin to think that they themselves have found out secrets that haven't been made known maybe to other believers. They would try to differentiate themselves. That's what Paul gets at at the beginning of verse 7. Who makes you different? They would try to find some difference between themselves and those who were in their group. Versus everyone else. Paul says you need to realize this is just arrogance. The arrogance that the scripture everywhere condemns. That sort of naturally leads to the second reality that Paul wants them to consider in measuring up their spiritual lives, which is the sovereignty of God. Not just the scriptural principles, but the sovereignty of God. Who sees you as different? And what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It's obviously a series of rhetorical questions all sort of building sequentially on each other, and all leading to one compelling conclusion, they cannot lay claim to anything in their lives. They have no grounds of boasting. Everything they are, everything they have, has come to them by God. This is really the worldview that Paul has in mind here that he wants them to adopt. This is really what he preached everywhere. It makes me think of First, excuse me, Acts 17 when he was standing in front of the philosophers there on the Areopagus. And he says to them that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he quotes to them from one of their own philosophers and says, Don't you know that in him we live and move and have our being? makes me think someone allowed us to stay in their home one time, and I just remember uh, being in that place, and and you're, you're mindful that nothing there belongs to you. I mean, everything you do, every dish you use, every time you turn on something with electricity or water, every time you move something, every time you put it back, everything, you always are mindful that you are moving and living and going about in someone else's place, Right? This is what Paul's saying. This is the way you need to view your life. Everything you're doing, everywhere you are, you are living and moving and having your being by God's power. You're totally under the sovereignty of God. Not only that, but when you're in that kind of environment, you're constantly grateful, or you ought to be. You're constantly mindful of the kindness of the one who has granted you whatever it is. You understand that it's all been given out of generosity. You wouldn't go into someone's house pompously declaring it your own, knocking down things, putting up things, hopefully, crashing things. I mean, we recognize inherently how ridiculous that is, how arrogant that is, and yet that's what people do. They go around with all the things God has given them, and pompously suppose that they are that it is their own. This is what Paul's saying to them and to us. What do you have that you didn't receive? I mean, the worldly mindset, the the atheistic mindset would answer that question pretty clearly. Nothing I have came from God. Everything I have, I have earned. Everything I have, I have produced. Everything I have is attributable to my wisdom, to my uh, work ethic, to my whatever. My inherent goodness, maybe. But the believer ought to think differently. They ought to know that everything they have, they have received by the grace and kindness of God. Every breath, Paul says. So if you've received it, why do you boast? Like it's something you produced, like it's something that you have, you yourself, discovered As a believer, in other words, you need to learn to see your life entirely under the sovereignty of God. This is what Paul will say to him at the end, 1 Corinthians 15. He'll come around at the end of this letter and he'll say after everything's been said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. His entire ministry, anything good that came from it was completely dependent on the sovereignty of God. He's already told them that he plants and someone else waters, but it's God who brings the increase. He told them back in chapter one, verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Just in case you doubted, just in case you thought it was a result of your own wisdom or your own effort, your own goodness. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, and then Christ Jesus, he says in that same verse, has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Everything comes from Him. So all you have materially is by the sovereign hand of God, and all you have spiritually is by the sovereign hand of God. This is the way you need to view your life. And all of it leads to only one possible conclusion there in one thirty-one, the very next verse. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's how you need to measure your life. You need to stop measuring your life, looking at the things that you have, the things that you've accomplished versus what someone else doesn't have and what someone else hasn't accomplished or what someone else hasn't realized and measuring yourself based on them. You need to measure yourself according to the generosity of God and His sovereign hand in your life and you need to be humbled by that. Now, well, then thirdly, Paul takes them to really the ultimate point of it, not just the sovereign, excuse me, the scriptural principles and the sovereignty of God, but really the spectacle of the apostles. I mean, this is really the heart of the passage. This is the contrast that he's really angling for. This is where the sarcasm reaches its zenith. And he, be- he begins to, uh, with a sort of summary of their own self assessment, just dripping with sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Here you are. You've left us behind. And maybe apart from this context, they would have exactly agreed with what Paul has to say. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have, Paul. I mean, you look at our life. I mean, we're pretty esteemed. Everybody loves us. Paul may, in fact, be using language that they had used of themselves. He does that over and over again throughout this letter. Whatever the case, this is their self-assessment. They had assumed themselves to be spiritual people. They had assumed that they were favored and especially blessed by God with wisdom and and a fullness and a, a wealth of knowledge. They proclaim arrogantly later on in 1 Corinthians 8, we all have knowledge. Paul will have to tell them it puffs them up. in modern terms, we might say they had arrived. They had arrived, which is a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place to be because it leads to self-satisfaction, it leads to complacency, and really to spiritual arrogance. It leads to the It leads to the apathy of Laodicea who said, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing and without realizing that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Same place that these Corinthians were, lukewarm in their spiritual lives. Well, Paul had already exposed them back in chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 when he gave the evidence of their immaturity, which was basically a jealousy and a strife that was always among them. Those of you who think that you have some spiritual claim, some spiritual standing, and you just look at your lives and your relationships, and they're filled with animosity, and they're filled with conflict, you have no basis whatsoever to claim anything. Paul basically was saying to them, you can define yourself as wise and knowledgeable all you want, but... This isn't the wisdom of God. That's not what the wisdom of God produces. It doesn't produce strife, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder. Well, Paul now is exposing him here in chapter 4 in a different way. He's exposing their self-assessment. They felt like they were particularly blessed, full of riches, reigning like kings... In reality, they had just imbibed the thinking of the world. It's interesting, Plutarch describes the Stoics of this day. He describes them this way, quote, In their sect, the wise men is termed not only prudent and just and brave, but also an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king, quote. In other words, this, was, this is the self-description of, in, in Stoic philosophy of the wise person, Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher, wrote, quote, Who, when he lays eyes upon me, does not feel that he's seeing a king, End quote. Sort of an ancient self-esteem occult, I, I guess. I don't, you know, sort of self-realization, self-actualization. If you say enough things really good about yourself long enough that somehow it's going to happen. The uh, the ancient Oprah of the world. (laughs) The Carl Rogers precursor. Well, Paul had taught them, and our Lord had taught them, that a cross precedes a crown. That suffering precedes glory. That you die in order to live. That you give up your life in order to find it. In fact, the things the Corinthians were apparently saying about themselves, they are the ultimate end for every believer. We will reign with Christ, Revelation 5 says. We will be seated on thrones. We will re- rule along with him over his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. That's why Paul says, look, I wish you were reigning. I wish you were. I mean, I would mean that we are too. I mean, the suffering is over. but he knows that all these things aren't true. He wishes the kingdom would come because then nothing else he says in verses 9 through 13 would be a reality anymore, but it is. And that's what he begins to deal with is he exposes their lives even more by drawing this contrast between the way they thought of themselves, the way they like to live, the way they sort of, or what they sort of demanded in life versus the way Paul and the other apostles lived. And he's basically doing this so that they, and so that you and I could do sort of assessment of ourselves, measure ourselves, size ourselves up spiritually against the spectacle that was the lives of the apostles. He says, he and the other apostles in verse 9 appeared before the eyes of the world as one sentenced to death. They were, the word is exhibited, excuse me, it's often associated with military defeats. When a general, a Roman general won a major victory, it would be celebrated with what was simply called the triumph. That was originally a Latin word. And it was a word to describe the parade that would be put on as they came, as they entered back into the city, and at the back of the parade would be all of the conquered prisoners in chains, sort of muddling along on their way to death, all these conquered prisoners. Sometimes prominent people, sometimes lesser people, but all of them now, all of them brought down to the same level. They were being taken to the arena. Paul says here they have been made a spectacle, a theatron. They sort of become the theater of the world. The theater of that day, of course, was the Colosseum. These prisoners would have been marched to their death to fight the wild beasts in the arena. And become a spectacle. It makes me think when I was, I remember being in China one time and walking on the crowded streets and heard some loud buzzing, you know, siren and stuff like that. And this truck came by and uh, they just seated on the back of the truck with their hands tied behind them and a big hat on their head and a placard around their neck where these, bun- a bunch of people just sort of lined up on chairs on the back of this flatbed truck and just driving around the city. And I just thought that was bizarre and strange. And so I, I asked my friend, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, they're going to arena. They're going to shoot them." That's what they did. That's how they execute. Sort of shame someone. You hang their crime around their neck. You drive them around the city so everybody see what they did. And then you take them off and you shoot them. This is what Paul says. This is what we are. We're, we're sort of the dunces, we're sort of the off-scouring, we're sort of the ones that are just sort of drug around, made a spectacle to the world, and then taken out to summarily be disposed of. That's our life. How's yours? We're nothing more than the exhibition to both humanity and to angels. Everyone who sees us, everyone's watching Our obedience to Christ is leading us here. It's leading us from one event of suffering to another. One event of suffering to another. It's true, they will reign one day, but right now they're far from it. Probably why Paul could have such an intense desire for the kingdom. Probably why he had such a hunger for the return of Christ. It's because this world had nothing to offer him. Except more pain, more suffering. And amazingly, Paul says this isn't because of mistakes that we made. And it isn't because we didn't have enough faith in God in order to be the victor. He says, as a matter of fact, God has exhibited us this way it's God who's done this he's the one that's put us on display in this way it is his design it's God's will in other words that this was the way it would be their lives would be marked by struggle by failure by loss by disgrace All by God's design. Not unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Paul's probably saying this because they knew. They knew Paul was a spectacle. They knew that he was embarrassing. They'll say over in 2 Corinthians 10, look, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. They're ashamed of his ignorance of the ways of the world. He lacked the wisdom and the eloquence and the acclaim that the people around them had. They were jealous for a leader who would be a triumphant general, a king, an exalted one. They didn't want some prisoner at the back of the parade. They didn't want to follow behind that kind of person. They probably were going around wondering why Paul wasn't more like them. Why wasn't he more successful? Why wasn't he more acclaimed? Well, Paul's stacking them up and basically, with sarcasm, bringing them and us to shame. This is the way it is, Paul says. We're fools for Christ's sake. Verse 10. We're weak. We're in disrepute. He basically is addressing three areas of their life. First of all, in regard to their teaching, they're fools for Christ's sake, although the Corinthians thought they were wise. Their teaching, the, the, the teaching of the apostles was mocked, ridiculed by the world as foolish, in no way worthy of of intellectual respectability, naive and useless. Secondly, in regard to their position, not just their teaching, but in their position, he says, we are weak, although you think you're strong. The faith of these apostles made them appear to the world as vulnerable and weak because they obeyed the Lord. They followed the principles of the Lord. They were looked at in this way. They were mocked and made fun of. And then thirdly, in regard to their classification, in regard to their status, he says, you're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. the Corinthians somehow had come to the conclusion that being a good Christian means being esteemed by the world. Somehow, somewhere along the way, they had come to the conclusion that the world actually does love the wisdom of God and that therefore if they're walking in the wisdom of God, the world will love them exact opposite of what our Lord taught, right? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because they spoke well of the false prophets. John Calvin paraphrases verse 10. Quote, you desire along with the gospel to retain the commendation of wisdom. Whereas I, the apostle, have not been able to preach Christ without becoming a fool. In the eyes of everyone. End quote. Or you found a way to preach Christ where it doesn't cost you anything. You found a way to preach Christ where you're still looked at as sensible and reasonable and wise, honored and esteemed. Well, that's interesting because when I preach Christ, everyone says I'm a fool. When I preach Christ, everyone says I'm weak. When I preach Christ, everyone says I'm disreputable. Curious. Paul had already told them back in chapter 1, verse 26, God didn't choose these kinds of people. He didn't choose the mighty. He didn't choose the strong. He didn't choose the noble. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised in verse 28. That's what God chose to do His work. The whole life of the apostles was a joke to the world. And it will be for every believer who wants to be like them. John MacArthur says this. It's not hard for believers to get along in the world as long as they keep the gospel to themselves. But if they preach, teach, and live God's full word, the world takes great offense. It resents being under the light of truth. Satan is the god of this world, the ruler of darkness. His kingdom cannot stand the light of the gospel and will persecute and destroy, if possible, those who stand and live for it. End quote. This is what what Paul is saying. He begins to catalog a, a list of statements in verse 11 describing his life in service to Christ. They were, he says... Because of their frequent travels, often hungry and thirsty, either from unstable employment, or because of robbers in all of their endeavors, because of the risk that they were taking in serving Christ, because of their extensive travel and exhausting pace at which they worked, their clothes were constantly wearing out, so that as if they were, they were unclothed. It went about preaching the light of God's truth in a dark, dark world, and frequently they were roughly treated. He says because of that, buffeted, and on top of that, they sacrificed every convenience and luxury, such as a home, the basic necessities of life. In fact, it's amazing if you just look at the list. He's not—he's not even talking about giving up luxuries. He's talking about giving up necessities. Clothing and food and home. Like our Lord who had no place to lay His own head. We think somehow we're supposed to reign. We think somehow that we're supposed to be esteemed. That we're supposed to have it all. We're supposed to be filled. It's not to say it's necessarily evil to own a home. In fact, when Paul traveled, he would often stay in the homes of believers. These are where churches met. Often in those early days. It's not evil to own a home, but it certainly is evil to live for it. Paul engaged, he says, in toil. He labored, verse 12, working with our own hands. It's not that different even in Paul's day like it is today. People were judged by the state of their hands. You shake a man's hand and they're rough and burly and all gnarled up from work. You make an assessment about that person. The same true here. His hands were very different than the soft hands of the philosophers. He worked as a tent maker probably hunched over a bench many hours every day, sometimes maybe even alongside slaves who also did that kind of work. Archaeologists have actually unearthed and identified a tent maker's shop. It is a 10 by 10 literal hole in a wall. A hole in the wall of a city, a little 10 by 10 room where the tent maker would do his work during the day and sleep on the hay at night. Dark and cramped, certainly not the grand hall and the spatial uh, uh, mansion of a, of, a, of a recognized philosopher. And yet, Paul says, This is what my life looked like. To the Thessalonians, he says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach the gospel to you. He says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, he did that for the space of three years, the whole time he was with them. No recognition, no praise from the world. In fact, all they got was reviling, persecuting, slandering. And yet he saw it all as God doing it. You understand that? God did this. He says, God exhibited us this way. That's why Paul doesn't revile. That's why he doesn't retaliate. That's why he doesn't slander. In return. You see, if you, if you think that you're in control... Of a situation. If you think that it all comes down to you and it's all your own product and your own effort, then someone attacks you, you're going to attack them back. If someone slanders you, you're going to slander them back. If someone manipulates you, you're going to manip- manip- manipulate back. If you're looking at this life the way that the world looks at it, then you're constantly going to be jockeying and punching and pulling, resentful and bitter. With every persecution, with every reviling word, with every slander. But when you see all of this stuff under the hand of God, then you can understand exactly what Romans 12 tells us Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can leave all that stuff into the hand of God, and you can get focused on what you're supposed to be focused on, which is the testimony of the gospel. Yeah, you'll appear weak. Yeah, people will take advantage of you. Yeah, you will probably lose some things. You will probably do without some things. You will be taken advantage of. You will be manipulated. You will be reviled. You will be persecuted. And in fact, you'll be considered, as Paul says. The scum, the scum of the world. That refers to things basically that were washed down the gutters and the sewers. you ever been to the third world, you understand that these are not, these are not very fancy systems. Basically a ditch in the middle of the road. And people would go and just dump out their water pots there. And if they have some water, they might try to wash it down to the next neighbor's front door. And then hopefully a good rain will clean the system out every now and then. He says, we're the stuff that's right there in the middle. Just the, the off-scouring. Everything that goes into the gutter, that's what we are. To the world, we are worthless teachers teaching worthless ideas and making absolutely no contribution to life and society. These apostles, they were looked at as the problem, the reason that society is defiled, the filth that needed to be washed down the drain. That's how you measure yourself. That's how you stack up. That's how you size yourself up. The boundaries of scripture, the sovereignty of God, the spectacle of both the apostles and every other godly prophet, man and woman who ever lived. I guess there is some shame, although Paul says he doesn't intend it. But there's shame when we realize just how worldly we have become just how much we have imbibed the thinking of the world just how much we're living so that we can reign in this life instead of living waiting for the rain that's coming in the Lord's kingdom well thankfully Paul doesn't just leave them there he doesn't want to just do that He has brought them low because He knows God can build them up. And we'll get to that more next time. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, it is woeful for us. It is painful for us to read because we realize with a sense of shame how often we have compromised the gospel and how often we have hidden it we have put it under a basket under a bushel we have muted our voice and we have compromised our way we adopted the ways of the world we realize lord and we've done all these things in not following you. Lord, make us faithful. Help us to size ourselves up. Help us to think according to scriptural principles. Help us to think of ourselves under the sovereignty of your plan and your hand. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to suffer in whatever way is necessary. And we might be found faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.